the cross. It seems very plain when you first look at it, but when you really start looking at it, there's a, it's actually multifaceted, and you, and you look at it from different angles. And today, I want to look at it from the physical side, the spiritual side, and then the personal side. So first, let's just go over the physical side of what, if we lived back when Jesus lived and was crucified, what would we have recognized? What would we have seen with our eyes? And before we start, I think it's very important for us to first get this out there, that a lot of times our idea of maybe Jesus is this like hippie, peace and love Jesus. But Jesus, as we see, he was the man, a real man. And what makes a man a man is that they own up and take responsibility. They bear the weight. And, and part of being a man is this strength. And the strength is beyond just working out. It's, this, it's strength and suffering and bearing a weight without complaining. And that's why it's oftentimes glanced over, but to me it's one of the most powerful verses in talking about the cross of Jesus. And that's in John 18.4. It starts in the garden where we're going to talk here in just a minute, but Jesus is in the garden. Judas and all the mob is coming to arrest Jesus. And it says this, John 18.4 says, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. He fully realized what we're about to talk about. He fully realized all that was going to happen to him. And for most of us, if we, once we realize what Jesus went through, we would head to the hills. We would run the opposite direction. But what does Jesus do? Being the real man, it says, so he stepped forward to meet them. Jesus is a real man. So what ended up happening? What was it that he fully realized was going to happen to him? Well, like I said, it starts in the garden, and he's in agony, praying out to God the Father, saying, if there's any other way, please, let's do it that way. But not my will, but your will be done. And he's in such agony and stress that Luke actually records that his blood vessels in his head had burst and his, out of his sweat pores was coming blood, which is an actual medical condition still today. Under those that are amidst stress and agony, the, that's what happens. And Jesus is in that agony and stress as he's starting to feel this distance between him and his father who have been so close for all eternity. And then he steps forward and, and Judas comes forward and betrays him with a kiss. Judas, the, he had been with Jesus for three years. Jesus was a true friend to him. And yet, Judas betrays him with a kiss. And as though that's not bad enough, all of a sudden he was then deserted by all the rest of his followers, all the rest of his friends, and he was left there all alone. They bound him, they took him before the high priest for a false trial, and they trumped up some charges, they got some people to testify falsely against him, and, and then they question him directly, just saying, are you the Son of God? And he says, it is as you say. You are going to see me bef beside God the Father. And so they say, that's enough. Well, that's, we've heard enough. They bound him, and then they blindfolded him, and they beat him, saying, who hit you now, prophet? And then they took him the next, that, that morning, they took him before Pilate, and they started accusing him and listing all their charges to try to get him crucified. And Pilate, he kind of saw right through what was going on, and he kind of said, you know what? Uh, oh, he's from Galilee. Send him over there. So he sent him over to King Herod, who was uh, self-proclaimed king of the Jews. 
And here's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And when he's questioned by Herod, he never opens his mouth. Not even once. And so he sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, now everybody's in more of an uproar. More people are gathering around. Riots on the, on the venge. And so he says, all right, maybe they just want a pound of flesh. So let's just give it to him. So he, he says Jesus to go back. He's going to do a plea for mercy. And he sends Jesus back with all the Roman soldiers to be flogged. And now you need to understand something about flogging. Is that it wasn't like your bull whip where you just cracked the whip. No, a flogging was so much worse. So much worse that the Jews, they actually, in their law, said you can't lash anybody more than 40 times. And if you do, then you have to go undergo it. And so to make sure that they didn't, they said, we're going to go 39, just so that we don't go over, not even one time. But Romans, when you were flogged by the Romans, you were bound, and the only thing that stopped it was the endurance of the Roman soldiers. And so what they would end up doing is they would make the back really taunt of the victim. So either putting their hands way above and stretching them out or leaning them over something and stretching them out, making their back nice and taunt. And then you would have a Roman soldier on either side with what is called the cat and nine tails, this rod with these leather strands. And in the leather strands would be metal balls and, and glass and, and bone and, and, and just it's all woven into the leather. And then you would have them start from the top of the head, and they'd work their way down, raking across the body. And they would, they would simply slap across the back and then pull down. Slap and pull down. Starting up at the head and working all the way down. It was What would end up happening is the metal balls and, and stuff in the leather would, would start causing welts and, and the skin to start becoming tender. And then the glass and the bones would uh, start raking the flesh away. Sometimes they would get stuck on a rib, and they would pull, and the rib would come flying out. Sometimes the, uh, the, the strands would come around the head and gouge out the person's eye. Oftentimes, eight out of ten people died from the flogging and scourging alone because their back would be so torn apart that there was nothing to hold in their intestines. And so they would stand, and their intestines would fall, and they would die right there on the spot. Jesus undergoes that type of flogging and punishment. And then he's taken back before, with a Roman battalion, and they, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they put a robe across his shoulders that starts coagulating with the blood in his open back. They put a rod in his hand and they start mock-worshipping him. Hail, King of the Jews! When they finally got tired enough and, and fed up with it enough, they brought him back before Pilate. Here he is, a bloody mess. His own mom cannot recognize him. And he stands there, hardly able to stand on his own. And Pilate says, here's your king. And they say, no, that's not our king. And he says, and they're starting to get more riled up. The religious leaders have, have bribed people to say, hey, listen, when Pilate asks who we want, we want this guy crucified to release the Barabbas. And so he goes, who should I release? And he says, release Barabbas. And he says, well, what should I do with him? And they yell, crucify him, crucify him. So to keep a riot from breaking out, Pilate gives in. And they took him and they put the Roman soldiers, they, they would have put a crossbeam across his back. They would have first ripped off that robe, reopening up all the wounds, 
reopening up all the pain and anguish. And then they would put this splintery wood beam across his back, weighing 75 to 130 pounds. The Romans, they were very green, and so they would recycle their timber. So here's Jesus' blood mixing with the men that had been crucified before him. And he, would have, he carried that down this narrow passageway, and we're told that he fell. And with not able to brace himself, he would have fallen, and that would have impacted on his back. And it would have caused the same as a high-speed collision against his heart, and it would cause an aneurysm to start happening all around his heart sack, and, and causing even more pain. Then he was taken and to the place, and when he finally reached the place of the cross, they would have stretched him out, and they would have nailed around his wrist, right into the nerve. Then they would have twisted his body 90 degrees and nailed into his heel, causing excruciating pain. And then as they lift him up, and they dropped him in the, the hole, and there he stood, looking at the people that just crucified him, naked and ashamed. And this is the part where most people that were crucified would use their remaining breath to hurl curses and insults at those around them as they lose all control of their bowel movements. But Jesus, he decides he does, he's not going to die with bitterness and resentment in his heart and unforgiveness. And he calls out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And in that instant, a Roman soldier took his field kit, the equivalent of a toilet brush, and thrust it into his mouth. He agonized for hours as the wrath of God is poured upon him. And then he finally gives up his spirit, yelling out, It is finished! And surprised when it comes time to get them off the cross because a lot of people could last for days, but the Passover was coming up and the religious leaders didn't want those people up there during their religious festivals. And so they asked them to speed it along. And they come up to Jesus ready to break his legs and realize that he's dead. But they had to make sure because if a Roman soldier classified someone as dead and they ended up not being, that Roman soldier would go through the same punishment as that person. So this Roman soldier takes a spear and thrusts it in through his rib and bursts into his heart and blood and water flowed. A symbol that Jesus' heart had exploded. Jesus died of a broken heart. And this is what we would have seen. And this physical reality, though, means absolutely nothing if we don't understand the backdrop. The real reality is not what we see, but it's the unseen world, and that is true for all life, even today. To truly understand the importance of this act, you need to understand what is happening in the invisible spiritual world. And what better passage to tell us what that was than Isaiah 53? Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence, like a tender green shoot, like a root and dry ground. 
There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. And we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away, and no one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good pleasure will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and intercede for rebels. We are those rebels. In a day and age of high self-esteem and wanting everybody to feel good about themselves, you need to realize that apart from Jesus, you are an enemy of God. And your very acts of disobedience and thoughts and actions cause so much harm and they are cosmic treason against the God creator. And instead of him demanding for us to make it right, he substituted himself to die in our place. What is going on in the spiritual realm is Jesus bore the wrath of God that we deserve. And him being an internal being that took on our flesh for a short time makes his sacrifice sufficient for all people for all times. But this is also a foreshadowing warning to those that refuse to turn to God through Jesus. This is what you will suffer for the rest of eternity if you don't turn to Jesus. Because God will not be mocked. This is what makes this one verse so powerful. They call it the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And this is why when I'm asked to summarize all that Jesus accomplished on the cross in one word, the one word is reconciliation between us and God. 
For God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you, who were once so far away from God. You were His enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. And as a result, He has brought you into His own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before Him without a single fault. He, Jesus, comes and stands in our place to reconcile the most important relationship, the one that we can't solve, the one that we can't fix. Jesus made it possible through the cross and all that He suffered. So why can't we reconcile with one another? Remember, Jesus goes through all this suffering, and then as He's put on the cross, He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing and we thrust a toilet brush in his mouth. And when we refuse to forgive and to reconcile with one another, we are that soldier shoving that toilet brush in his mouth. We need to realize Jesus was beaten for all. And yet we still beat each other up to seek to get our pound of flesh. Jesus bore our shame. Yet we continue to walk around in our shame and shame others. Jesus was judged in your place, and yet you keep judging. And then you wonder why God seems so distant, why your soul cannot rest, why it's in such torment and pain. The key to peace of your soul is not vengeance or removing a person or changing locations. The key is to crucify yourself. Don't you realize, to sing a worship song to God while having hatred and bitterness in our heart towards one another is to kiss Jesus like Judas. Don't you realize, to hold on to our grudge, to not forgive, is to proclaim that Jesus' sacrifice and all that He went through was not sufficient. Don't you realize, to gossip and lie about one another is to give false testimony once again to order to crucify Jesus. To manipulate And deceive others toward your benefit is to join the religious leaders and bribing the crowd to release Barabbas and demand Jesus crucified. Don't you realize to understand for what is true, to not stand for what is true and right and and tolerate wrongdoing and evil is to cry out once again, crucify him. Don't you realize to wish harm on someone and find satisfaction in their downfall is to flog his back and take a chunk of his flesh? Don't you realize to pursue the riches and things of this world is to place the crown of thorns on Jesus' head and mock worship him? Don't you realize to have that lustful thought or utter that hurtful word is to drive nails in the hands and feet of Jesus? Don't you realize to have self-righteous, unrepentant attitude is to be the thief hurling insults at Jesus. Don't you realize to not desire Jesus and to seek Him above all else is to drive the spear into His already broken heart. Repent before it's too late. What I'm driving at is when you realize the spiritual reality taking place, it it then affects, or at least it should, our daily life. Because the cross is pointless 
if your life stays the same. We need to realize that theology has consequences on our everyday life. It's our lives that often lead others to dismiss Jesus, and that's not the way it should be, because in Matthew 16, 24 through 27, Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, will judge all people according to their deeds. The word life here can be translated soul. And Jesus is warning us about the gravity of our decision to practice self-denial or pursue self-fulfillment and about the trajectory of the decisions of our souls. And notice it's a statement. It's not a command. You will lose it or you'll save it. Not you could lose it or save it. Jesus is giving a statement of reality. And it's true, it will cost us to follow Jesus. But we also need to realize it will cost us even more to not follow him. Jesus is not trying to get, he's, what he's trying to do is to get you to run a simple cost-benefit analysis. Your soul versus your flesh. Are you really willing to trade long-term ha- happiness for short-term pleasure? Love for fleeting sexual encounter? contentment with what you have for the feeling of buying a shiny new thing. How much is your soul worth to you? We look at the cross and you know how much God says your soul is worth. And We must look at what Jesus endured on the cross, not just as our salvation, but as our example. We examine our life and bring everything of our flesh to submission to Jesus, and then we kill it. Do you really think that Jesus went through all that so that you can harbor bitterness and tear each other down? So that you can work at building your own comfortable life? We all realize that things need to change. And what I'm trying to say is that the only way things change is to follow Jesus and to be crucified. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed to, for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. In a world and society that realizes there's so much trouble everyone, and everyone's out to offer a solution, there's only really one solution to all of our problems, and his name is Jesus, and the path is the cross. For only Jesus' death on the cross can fix the real source of all of our problems, sin. Listen, your enemy is not the person in front of you. It is the spirit behind them and in the tormenting them. And the way to liberate them is through the cross. And before we can tell them about the cross, we have to crucify our own self, our own selfishness, our own desires, and show them a different way of living that it makes it even more enticing. The cross is the only answer to all of our problems. Colossians 2 says it this way, starting in verse 8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ 
lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by, by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of all the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holidays or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere man, human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires." The problem is our sinful heart. And rules and laws and politicians, they can't change anything because they can't touch the heart. Only the Spirit of God can touch a heart. That's why we proclaim the gospel and we point to the cross and we crucify ourselves because it is the only thing that can change everything. But let me be clear in this point. We suffer and deny ourselves not to fix societal issues, but for Jesus. How much is He worth to you? Until we're ready and start denying ourselves, then do we truly know Jesus? Listen, the cross, dying to ourselves, is the only way to start and continue a relationship with Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 38-39, If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you give up your life for me, you will find it. The cross. It's saying to Jesus, whatever, wherever, whenever, I'm yours. Can you truly say that? I know it's hard. I know the battle that takes place, but I'm telling you, once you get to the other side, you find out it is totally worth it, and it's the life that you are actually striving for. And it's possible because Jesus yelled out, It is finished. And our restless souls needs to hear and accept that. So what are you still trying to figure out on your own that Jesus has said is finished? What are you holding on to? What do you need to crucify? 
Galatians 5.24, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 6.14, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. 1 Peter 2, 21-25, For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is our example, and you must follow in His steps. He never sinned, nor never deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when He was insulted, nor threaten revenge when He suffered. He left His case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Do you truly want a relationship with God? Do you truly desire Jesus above all else? Are you ready to fully live, then take up your cross, model Jesus' life, and die to your flesh. And this is not up for debate. And you might be wondering, how can I be this bold? It's because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, and He's alive and well today, ruling in heaven, and He's coming back very, very soon. 